we now join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. I'm Pastor Glenn Thomas, one of the pastors here at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere. We welcome everyone to our Sunday morning Bible class. Not only the people who are here at St. Paul's in our gymnasium, but those listening on KFUO 850 AM and worldwide at KFUO.org. As is our usual custom, we're going to be looking at the three scripture readings that we will be hearing in church next Sunday, not today, but next Sunday, and studying through those. Let's begin with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we continue to rejoice in the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, the first fruits of all who have fallen asleep, knowing that through him we have life abundant life and eternal life. And we thank you for this opportunity to gather together to study your word. We pray your Holy Spirit's presence and blessing upon our study here, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we'll be looking at the scripture lessons for April 22, and this is a Sunday, the fourth Sunday of Easter, that every year is referred to by the common name Good Shepherd Sunday. And that's because the overriding image for this coming, for this next Sunday, is the image of God, or especially in this case Jesus, as our Good Shepherd. And with that being the case, what psalm do you think is the psalm that is assigned every year on the fourth Sunday of Easter? 23rd Psalm, obviously, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And you always get a gospel lesson uh, from John chapter 10, where Jesus, throughout the chapter, refers to himself as a shepherd and us as his sheep. Okay? So we're going to see that, that theme dominant, especially in the gospel lesson. But, as I've said the uh, last couple of weeks, after Easter, we also, uh, most years, have the book of Acts as a replacement for the Old Testament lesson. So we're going to continue with that today. Our first lesson is from Acts chapter 4. And just picking up again, we are following this same incident and the reaction to this incident. Remember, two weeks ago, we had the case where the blind, or I'm sorry, the beggar who had been uh, lame from birth... Uh, goes with Peter and John. Uh, he, th this beggar from birth, uh, lame man from birth, is at the, the entrance to the temple, the gate of the temple, and is there begging for alms. Peter and John walk by. He asks for some money from them. And remember, Peter responds, Gold and silver I do not have, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus, stand up and walk, or get up and walk. And the man does. Remember, he goes leaping and, and jumping uh, into worship. Then they come out of worship and in the temple. And remember, a great crowd gathers around. And this is what we had today in the first lesson, if you were in church uh, at the earlier service. And there you have, again, a crowd gathering around because they, they knew this guy was the guy. He was the beggar every uh, day as they passed. And here he is walking around. And so Peter preached a sermon, basically, uh, talking about Jesus Christ, that it was in the name of Jesus that this man was healed, and remember, connected so much with the Old Testament prophets, that the Old Testament scriptures pointed ahead, and this Jesus is the fulfillment, you know. And now today, we pick up the next chapter, and that is the uh, religious authorities, are now going to come on the scene and do a little investigation themselves. They are uh, concerned. There was probably, we think, at least from the description, we think there was probably quite a lot of commotion uh, that occurred there. Uh, not only this guy is very enthusiastic, but as we learned last week, a great crowd came forward. And then Peter is preaching a resurrection through Jesus Christ. And so now it's got the attention of the religious officials. And this is where we pick it up. So this will be what we'll look at next week, but let's take a read through here first. We're in Acts 4, verses 1 through 12. Let's read through uh, the first couple of verses and then go back and talk about it a little bit. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, 
greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. All right, so let's go back and just kind of uh, take this apart a bit. The they, as they were still speaking, would of course be Peter and John, uh, the apostles, the disciples, and they were still speaking to the people. So they're, they're still explaining to the people how it is that this guy was healed, that this man who had been lame from birth was healed. And then come the priests. Now, we think these were probably more than just the garden variety priests. We think they were probably some of the chief priests, okay? They were out front running the resistance against Jesus. So it's true that they were priests, but we think they probably were a little bit higher. Then this guy called the captain of the temple. The captain of the temple was the chief of the temple police. They actually had their own... Uh, I don't want to say law enforcement, but, but detail, let's say, to keep the peace. And, you know, if you've ever, if you've ever seen news clips from the Middle East, <clears throat> when, when there's a commotion, boy, there's a commotion, right? And people get worked into a lather. And this guy, his responsibility was for the general peace and tranquility of the surrounding the temple area so that people could worship in peace. So he's interested in what's going on. Because again, remember, there's this big commotion because this guy was healed. So you got these, chief, you got these priests, you got this uh, head soldier of the temple guard, the, the guy that's uh, in charge of keeping the peace, and the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees, we always talk about there are the Sadducees and the, who's the other big one? Pharisees, okay? And so let's just for a moment talk about this. The Pharisees were actually lay people. They were not clergy. And their big concern was the keeping of the law, especially the Sabbath day law. And they, they were against all of the Greek influences that they felt were coming into the church. But they're not there this time. It's the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the priestly, uh, in this time really, priestly clan almost at this time. And they were the ones from whom the priests, but especially the high priests, were chosen. And the Sadducees were wealthy people. They were very affluent people. They did not want the status quo to change. They had a good thing going. And so they actually at many times cooperated with the Romans. They didn't want things upset. Um, if you remember back in Lent, we talked about the great racket that they had going with the uh, selling of the animals for the sacrifices. And uh, that, uh, of course, they had pre-approved animals there for people to buy when they came to the Passover and, and so on. So they were just fine with the way things were going. They didn't want anything to change at all. So they are there wondering, you know, along with the others, what's going on here? And what is this rabble? What, what is happening here? You know, uh, we want things to change. We don't want things to change. Um, one of the Sadducees, we'll get their names here in a minute, but Caiaphas, for example, the high priest at this time, is a Sadducee. And remember, when they brought Jesus before the Sanhedrin in the illegal meeting that they had at night, on Monday, Thursday night, it's Caiaphas who says to the group, you don't understand. It would be better for one man to die than for the whole nation to perish. Now, he didn't realize what he was saying. He was actually, what he was saying had bigger implications than what he even knew at the time. But you see, that's the thinking. It's better if one guy perishes than the whole nation perish. In other words, we, we want to keep things as they are. Let's just let this guy, Jesus, uh, be killed, and, and we'll all be the better off, okay? The, uh, the other thing that we're going to see here in just a moment is that the Sadducees especially looked at the first five books of the scriptures, the books of Moses, the Pentateuch, and they were extremely conservative, and they felt that the Pharisees were bringing in liberal beliefs 
about things like the resurrection from the dead. Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. And also did not believe in spirits or angels. And they wanted to hold the line. Well, look at the Sadducees are here. And what's Peter been talking about? The resurrection of the dead through Jesus Christ? So they are, they are on edge right now. And, the, you know, this chief law enforcement officer is not happy. And the, uh, the priests, who are probably also uh, some Sadducees also, are all here because of this commotion and because of what Peter is saying. Okay? So, verse 2, obviously they were greatly annoyed because, notice, why are they annoyed? They were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. See? So the Sadducees are against this from the get-go. Um, it's kind of funny, we won't look at it, but I think it's Acts 23, where uh, Paul is being, they got Pharisees and Sadducees, and Paul is being questioned, and he just brings up the, the topic of the resurrection of the dead. And all of a sudden, the attention shifts from Paul to the Sadducees and the Pharisees who are arguing amongst themselves about the resurrection of the dead. So uh, they just really did not like this doctrine, and they, they're going to be annoyed, as it says here. It's probably a mild term. So verse 3, notice what they did. They arrested Peter and John and put them uh, you know, in, behind bars. It was late in the day. So they could not do anything with them. We're going to see that they're going to have a meeting of the Sanhedrin. But the Sanhedrin was not supposed to meet after sundown, which, of course, they violated with Jesus on Monday, Thursday, where they brought him before, went first to Annas, then to Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, and it was an illegal meeting. But then that's why they had to meet again the first thing in the morning to make it a legal meeting and confirm what they already decided the night before. But they don't do that with Peter and John. They just put them in prison, or put them in, you know, behind guard, and uh, wait until the morning, okay? So, picking up now at uh, verse 4, but many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Good Lutheran theology there, right? How do we believe? Through the... Word, yeah, through the word proclaimed, God works through his means of grace to create and sustain faith, okay? So a, a great number of those who heard actually believed. Now, if we go back, it says here 5,000 men. And this is, not, this is not the Greek word for men in general. Like sometimes we use the word men just to speak about mankind or, or people in general. This is the actual one that refers to a man. So 5,000 men. Now, how many people did we have who were added to the faith right after Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, or right during Pentecost, I should say? Anybody remember? 3,000. Now, there, it's people. It's not just men. So we're kind of at a loss here is where I'm, where I'm getting to with this. Uh, we know how many men now are, are among the believers, 5,000. We don't know how many women and children were added as well uh, at this point. We started with 3,000 people total. We're up to 5,000 men now, and we don't, we're not told how many more. And, you know, it's interesting. You go through the book of Acts, you see the explosive growth of the church. Pretty soon it just starts talking about multitudes that believed. And so some of those who are believing here, of course, are, are the ones that have seen this lame man healed and they have heard the word of God proclaimed through Peter. Now remember, I think it was last week we said, is the main mission of Peter and John and the disciples, or was the main mission of Jesus for that matter, simply to heal people to make them better? Was that the end, the end goal? No. And here's a perfect example. This guy is healed, and that's great for him, certainly, I'm not diminishing that, but notice how it leads to an opportunity for the Word to do its work. The Word now had an audience with these people because of what they had seen and observed, and they were stunned and shocked. And Peter tells them how and why this guy was healed. And as a result, many believe. And 5,000 men now believe. Okay?
All right, so going on, uh, verse 5, on the next day, so this would be the next morning now, now they can meet legally, the sun is up, the, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together. That would be, again, their spiritual leaders. This would be a meeting of the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem with Annas, uh, the high priest, and Caiaphas and John and Alexander. Now, we don't know about one of these guys in particular, but uh, Annas is the guy who is no longer, he had been the high priest. It says he's high priest here, but he had been the high priest only from the years 6 to 15 A.D. So he was only the high priest for nine years. And, and uh, the thing is, though, you get the sense in the Gospels that even though he's not the uh, sitting high priest at that point, he still had incredible influence. I, I compared it to, you know, if you, if you think of mafia terms, he's like the retired godfather here, okay? Because when they arrest Jesus, who do they take him to first? They don't take him to Caiaphas, the guy who was the sitting high priest. They take him to Annas first. And uh, Annas just continued to exercise influence. Caiaphas then, who was son-in-law of Annas, ruled from 18 to 36 AD. So he was the actual sitting high priest. Uh, at the time of Jesus, at the time of Jesus' uh, trial and, and crucifixion. Now, just to show you how influential this family was, remember I said Annas was from 6 to 15 AD. He had five sons, one grandson, and one son-in-law who ended up serving as chief priest or high priest. Five sons, one grandson, and one son-in-law. The son-in-law was, was Caiaphas. So just think of that. I mean, for the entire first half of the century, uh, first century A.D., this family just basically ran the religious life in Jerusalem surrounding the temple. And so uh, they're, they're having a meeting now, and these guys are all present. We don't know much about Alexander at all. He's just one of them there. We don't know much about him. Uh, Jonathan, we think... Uh, was a, uh, a son as well, but we're not sure about his name, whether it's John or Jonathan, so there's a little controversy about that. But again, the big thing is this is quite a family. And all who were of the high priestly family, so the whole group is there. And so you get the impression this is a very important meeting. Uh, they are really concerned about what's going on around the temple. So verse 7. And when they had set them in the midst, in other words, when they set Peter and John there in the midst of them, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Now, you don't pick this up in the English, but this is a very condescending question. Or the way they ask the question is very condescending. In the original language, in the Greek, the you is at the end of the question. So it, it should probably be something like this, um, something like, by what power or by what name was this done by you? Okay, you get the drift? Because what, was, what were Peter and John? Were they, were they educated scholars, men of great uh, letters? They were what? Fishermen. And here are these, you know, the, the, the pompous uh, religious leaders, high and mighty, you know, by what authority did you do this? So you don't, you don't pick that up in the English, okay? So, but notice here, Peter's not going to take the bait when he responds. Look, look at how he responds, okay? So then, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. Why is that important? Why does Luke insert that? What do you think? It's, it's the authority. It's not going to be by Peter alone that he's going to say what he's going to say. You know, we, we almost glide right over that, but we shouldn't. It, it, Christ made a promise to the disciples, and uh, we won't look at it here, but it's in Luke 21, uh, verse 44, 14 and following. And he said, he told them, you're going to be hauled before kings and before leaders. And he said, do not, do not meditate or do not think about what you're going to say, for I will give you the words. 
And here's one of the first examples of that. And so we don't want to just glide over that. Notice he is filled with the Holy Spirit. And he said to them, rulers and people of the people and elders. So as I said, Peter doesn't take the bait, the condescending way that they ask the question. He addresses them with great respect here and in a, in a very respectful manner. So rulers and people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, so he's very precise here, Jesus, he could have just said Jesus of Nazareth, but the word Christ adds the fact that he is God's anointed one, right? The Messiah. Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Notice the contrast, you, here. Whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. So again, as he did last week, he's contrasting the way they treated Christ versus the way the Father treated Christ, right? You crucified him, and God raised him from the dead. By this man, is by him, this man is standing before you well. So the him is Jesus. By Jesus, this man is standing before you well. Now, it'd be easy to glide over this, but... Who is probably standing right before them at that point? This man, the guy who was healed. Now, we don't know if he was locked up with uh, uh, Peter and John overnight or whether they just called him back. You know, we don't know whether he was detained or not. Uh, but, you know, you almost wonder, was Peter pointing to this guy right at that point? By him, by Jesus, this man stands before you well. And they couldn't deny it. There he is, standing right there in front of him, right? So, you know, it's, like, it's almost like an object lesson for your sermon, right? There he is, this guy right here, standing before you well, and it's a result of Jesus. Verse 11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has now become this cornerstone. That's a, he's referencing there, uh, Peter is, Psalm 118, uh, verse 22. Jesus also referenced this psalm and applied it to himself, saying that, in essence, he is the cornerstone that is mentioned in Psalm 118. Uh, he did it, actually, in Mark chapter 12, and that is the parable of the uh, wicked tenants. Remember the... The guy has the vineyard, and he sends his, work, his first worker to get the harvest, and what do they do? Kill him. Send the second one. Kill him. And he says, and then shockingly he says, I'll send my son. Surely they'll respect my son. And what do they do to the son? Take him outside the vineyard and kill him. And then at the end of it, so Jesus is letting them know that he knows that they're gonna, what they're going to do to him. At the end of that, Jesus quotes Psalm 118.22 and applies it to himself. Now, a cornerstone. What was so significant about a cornerstone back in Bible times? Now, today when we build a new building, you know, we'll have a, sometimes a cornerstone laying ceremony and maybe put a time capsule inside with a, you know, a current newspaper or anything that you know, you think, okay, a hundred years later, somebody's going to open this up, and won't that be neat if they read about it, and so on. And that's, that's what I'm saying is it, it's a little more maybe just for show today than, than it was. But in Bible times, the cornerstone was the first stone that was laid, and great care was taken because it was in the shape of an L, and it actually lined up two walls. Now, what happens if you get that cornerstone crooked? The whole building's crooked. The whole building takes its guide from the cornerstone. So see how that's applicable to Jesus? He is the cornerstone of the church. The entire church takes its direction from him. And then in other places, you know, Paul will talk about the church being built on the uh, foundation of the apostles and prophets, prophets and apostles, and with Jesus Christ as its cornerstone. 
Okay, and then in other places it talks about us, uh, it talks about all of us in as living stones in that building, right? All being built up. So the imagery is throughout the scriptures, but here Peter again quotes it, Psalm 118, verse 22, and applies it to Jesus, just as Jesus had done for himself. And then there is a verse that is often quoted, Acts 4, verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And <clears throat> this is, uh, I guess, what we might call the exclusive claim of Christianity and of Jesus Christ that there are not many ways to salvation. In fact, there are no other ways to salvation than through Christ. And I know that that is offensive to people. Uh, seems especially today, there are a lot of people who uh, want to say something along the lines of, well, you know, we're all going to the same, we're all trying to get to the same location and it's sort of like at the top of a mountain and there are different paths up that mountain and we all end up in the same place. Uh, or, you know, there are many different truths out there today, so just be sincere and, and commit yourself to whatever your truth is. And that all sounds really nice, doesn't it? I mean, it, it just sounds very um, comfy and cozy, but unfortunately that's not what the Bible teaches. And uh, unfortunately, we have to, to say to people, well, no, I'm sorry. You know, and this is not just my opinion. It's what the scriptures say. Remember? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so, uh, again, Peter is making it very clear here to the religious authorities who would certainly acknowledge Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their God, and Moses, that unfortunately, there's only salvation through Jesus Christ. No other way. Okay? So, that's where we're going to leave. That's the end of the, uh, of the first lesson for next week, and we're going we're gonna to leave everybody in suspense as to what happens after that. All right? All right, let me stop here before I go on to the next lesson. Any uh, comments, questions? Yes? Yeah, the 5,000 men who came to believe would have been Jews, we think, who were there in, in Jerusalem. Yes, yes. You know, this, yes, this is, I forgot, I was going to point out, this Sanhedrin, remember, is, is just months after the, the same Sanhedrin that condemned Jesus. Now, this is not years and years later. Same group of guys. And they probably thought after they crucified Jesus, well, we got rid of him, right? Uh-uh. <laughs> Sadly mistaken. So, yes, these would have been Jews who were, who were converted. They were around the temple doing the worship. We're, we're going to see in the gospel lesson, Jesus is going to talk about sheep that aren't in his fold yet that must be brought in. There's a reference to Gentiles, like we think there. Yes, Jane? Uh, Caiaphas was the high priest from 18 to 36 A.D. Yeah, 18 to 36 A.D. Okay? Any others? Comments, questions? All right, let's go on then. Uh, we're going to also, in, in these weeks, as I mentioned, we are following through sort of a sequential reading of the epistles of John. So here we are going to be in 1 John 3 starting in verse 16 next week. And let me just do a little bit of review. Now, John, this is the same John again who wrote the Gospel of John and wrote Revelation. And he is, at this point, the elder statesman uh, of the Christian church. We believe he spent his last years in the city of Ephesus, uh, living there, taking care of uh, Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus, as Jesus asked him to do from the cross and told Mary to, to, uh, to go with him. That's uh, what history outside the Bible tells us. We don't, it's not in the scriptures, but it's tradition outside of the Bible. And uh, John is sort of, as I say, the elder statesman for the Christian churches in Asia Minor. And there were, he is writing here the epistles to combat some people, some false teachings of people who used to be in this 
Christian church in Asia Minor, and had left the church, so they're outside of it. They're called the secessionists, people who seceded from the church. And they were teaching some very dangerous things. They were, first of all, denying that Jesus came in the flesh, denying the incarnation of Christ. And this went from a whole, they, they sort of had a um, sort of a despising of the physical, uh, the physical body. And so not, they not only denied that Jesus came in the flesh, they also said, it doesn't matter if you go ahead and sin with your body. It doesn't really matter because your body's going to be destroyed in the end anyway. So just go out and do whatever you want. And the third thing they were teaching is you don't have to show love to anybody. Don't worry about that. And we think, how strange. And so notice, not only if you're in church today, but next week, John is going to hammer away a time after time against the fact that anyone who is in Christ doesn't just go out and sin willfully and, and keep on sinning unrepentantly. And secondly, he keeps hammering away at the fact that if you're in Christ, you show love to others as we have been shown love. And if you read through the epistles of John, you can't help but pick up those main emphases as you go through. And our lesson here will be no exception. Okay? So starting at verse 16, why don't we just read the whole thing through, and then we'll go back and pick it up. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given. Okay, so did you pick up quite a bit of that going through? Both the keeping the commandments and the love gets hammered at time and time. Yes, Nancy? Are these the Yeah, the question was, are these the Gnostics? We don't think Gnosticism was quite full bloom yet, but it certainly seems to be the, the seeds of it are, are there. Yeah, Gnosticism came in and came to full bloom a little bit later, but we think the seeds were starting to be sown here for it. Yeah, that's a great question. All right, now let's go back and kind of take this apart. Verse 16, by this we know love. So what's gonna, how do we know love? By, what does he mean by this? Namely, that he laid down his life for us. Now, who's the he who laid down his life for us? Jesus, obviously. And notice there the, the willing, uh, voluntary nature of that. He laid down his life for us. And so kind of keep that phrase in your mind, because in the gospel lesson, we're going to hear Jesus say it in John 10 again and again. Okay? So how do we know love by this, that Jesus laid down his life for us. Remember, Jesus said, greater love has no man than he laid down his life for his friends. And that's exactly what he did. And now, let me ask you this. The next phrase, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Well, what does that look like? We, we are going to lay down our lives for the brothers, for our brothers and sisters in Christ, and for others for that matter. So is, is John here, do we think, is John asking us to all of us go out and be killed or kill ourselves for our brothers? Is that what he's driving at here, do we think? No. So if, obviously that's not what he's asking. So what's he asking that we should do? As Christ gave his all for us, even to his very life, we then, who have received this forgiveness and this great blessing, 
are to do what for our brothers and sisters and others? Give our all for them in service to them. You know, this was the great um, emphasis of Luther in the Reformation, that after he made the discovery in his own life of Romans 1.17, that the just shall live by faith alone, and he said it was like a big burden was lifted from his shoulders. Then he says, so what are we supposed to do now? Serve our brothers and sisters. We've been freed up. We don't have to, you know, earn our forgiveness now. Now joyfully we can look for the needs and serve the needs of our brothers and sisters. And so John is trying to drive home the same point here to people who are false teachers and are saying, you don't need to worry about anybody. You don't need to show love to anybody. And he's saying just the opposite of that here, okay? Uh, it reminds me a little bit of Romans 12, 1, doesn't it? Uh, uh, Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. It's almost the same kind of thing here. Uh, now, verse 17, the contradiction. Anyone who has the world's goods, in other words, like they have, right? And sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart. Actually, you can translate that, locks, locks his compassion. It's like turning the key on a door. How does God's love abide in him? And that would be both, it could be either or both. God's love, the love that God has shown to us, how does that abide in a person who does that kind of thing? And God's love that we are to show others, obviously, too. So how, and what's, that's a kind of a rhetorical question. The answer he's thinking is what? It doesn't. It can't, right? If you act that way, how can God's love be in you, okay? So notice there in verse 18, the term of endearment, little children. He's, again, sort of the elder statesman. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. In other words, in our actions. Now in verse 19, this relationship with our fellow uh, brothers and sisters and people in need stops, and now it's just he just talks about the vertical relationship we have with God. We are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. He wants to reassure the Christians there that they are in the truth and that these secessionists are not of the truth, that they are. You get the feeling that some of the people in this church might have started to wonder, might have started to doubt, is it really the way Peter and John were saying it is or not? Okay, And so here he says we are of the truth. He's reassuring them and uh, we reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows everything. Now let me ask you this. What is the danger of relying on our heart? To be, the, to be sort of our compass as to whether we are in the truth and whether we are in good standing with God or not. What's the danger of following our heart in these matters and in these questions? It's very fickle, exactly. Aren't there days where you feel, uh, spiritually speaking, like you and God are just, you know, uh, what's the... Forrest Gump said like peas and carrots or wasn't it something carrots and peas or whatever. <laughs> you know, you're, you're just together. And then there are other days where you might feel just the opposite. You might feel like God is a million miles away. And you see, those emotions and those feelings can be so manipulated by Satan. And instead of trusting our emotions, which can go up and down like a roller coaster, where do we go for our assurance, for, for uh, knowledge of our standing before God? To something that doesn't change. The Word of God, right? The Word of God that does not change. And to a God who does not change. And so uh, he is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And so what John is trying to get them to do, and again, you're, we're kind of reading between the lines here. But these secessionists seemed like they were pretty successful. Otherwise, he wouldn't be writing in such terms to them. And you kind of get the feeling that maybe some of these people were starting to doubt. Their hearts were starting to say, are we really right here or not? And so John is writing to just to re, you know, to uh, 
not re-energize, but bolster them, you know, and, and say, yes, you are of the truth. And if your heart, it says there, if, you, if your heart sort of questions or, or condemns you, notice there, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. So again, we turn to the God who knows everything for our assurance, not to our emotions, okay? Um, Luther, again, back at the Reformation time, uh, had to deal with this too. There was a whole group of people that were sort of doing this. They, they, and he called them the uh, schwammerai, schwammerai. Uh, that's buzzing bees, buzzing bees. And they were just uh, trusting in their emotions, their emotions. And uh, he again says he pointed people back to the solid word of God, just like, just like John is doing here uh, with the people there. So verse 21, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, in other words, if we're in the truth, we have confidence before God. Now, verse 22, does, it, does this mean that I can ask God for a new Mercedes and uh, I'll get, maybe I'll get two or three? It says there, whatever we ask, we receive from him. No, I think the, the, we know from other scripture, the gist of this is God will supply all our needs, Right? So in other words, the idea of not being anxious, not being worried about this, the God who knows everything, who knows what I need, will supply it, okay? Now, the next one I want to talk a little bit about, where it says, uh, uh, right after that phrase, verse 22, whatever we ask, we receive him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Another way to translate keep his commandments, which again, remember the secessionists were saying you didn't have to even bother with, is embrace his instruction. That's another way of translating those words. So, because we embrace his instruction and do what pleases him, or live to what pleases him, and this is his commandment or his instruction, that there's two things here. We believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and the name means everything that goes along with that name, so his life, death, resurrection, and so on. And notice the second thing is, love one another. How are all the laws and the commandments of God summarized? In fact, Jesus uh, commends the guy who, who does it this way. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On this, Jesus says, hang all the commandments and the law and the prophets, I should say. Um, so here's exactly what he is saying. You know, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. Or in other words, believe in the name of Jesus Christ, and then also love your neighbor as yourself. And again, they were saying, you didn't have to worry about your neighbor at all. Okay? Then finally, just as... He, now, when did, Jesus, when did Jesus command us to love one another? Did Jesus ever say that? Maundy Thursday, in the upper room with the disciples. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, how? As I have loved you. That's why, by the way, that's why Maundy Thursday is called Maundy Thursday. It's from the Latin word for command. A new command I give to you. This was when he was up in the upper room. Uh, love one another as I have loved you. And so there again, uh, these people are saying, nah, don't worry about that. We don't have to show love to anybody. So whoever keeps his commandments or embraces his instruction and abides in God and God in him, and by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Notice again, just as we saw in the book of Acts, it's that spirit that works inside of us, always pointing us to Jesus. Okay? All right, let me stop here. Any comments, questions? Yes. yes. Okay, the question was, is he preaching to an existing church? What would happen is these epistles would be read out loud in different uh, towns in Asia Minor, we think. So different churches in different cities. And uh, so they were meant to be read out loud, just like we're doing here. And uh, that's kind of the way the people would hear about it. But these people listening were supposedly Christians. Yes. 
The people listening were Christians, and he's trying to bolster them up to, to prevent them from being uh, influenced or taken away even by, by these false teachers. Yes, that's a great point. That, the point was that the secessionists are teaching opposite from clear uh, biblical teaching and, and state, clear statements of Christ. And, uh, you know, again, non-Christians out there who don't know any better could easily be influenced by them and brought into, the, into error when it comes. That's why, again, false teaching and error, you know, people wonder why in the world would they have burned John Huss at the stake. John Huss was a reformer who lived about 100 years before Luther and was burned at the stake. And Luther's running around saying, I, I'm teaching a lot of the same things John Huss is teaching. And his friend, Luther's friend said, be quiet. Don't be saying that. But you see, the reason that, that in the Middle Ages especially, this was taken so seriously, they would say something like, yes, we will arrest and lock somebody up for assault, for hurting somebody physically, but a false teacher can kill somebody eternally by their false teaching. And that's why they took it so seriously. And so, um, you know, this, this is very dangerous. And this is, why, this is why John is so concerned with what's going on. And, you know, you can put yourself in John's shoes a little bit. He's the, last, he's the last apostle who walked with Jesus, who's still alive on the face of the earth at this time. He has seen the church grow. And now he sees this happening. And he's in his latter years. He, he, I'm sure he knows this. And so he is more than a little concerned about what's happening here and what kind of, what kind of church is going to be left after he dies in Asia Minor. So he is, he's writing very pointedly about, about these things. And in essence saying, if, if you're not doing this, you're not in Christ and God does not abide in you. So, all right, any other questions or comments? All right, finally, we get to the gospel lesson. And as I said, this is sort of the emphasis on Good Shepherd Sunday. Let's just read through. It's not very long, just 11 through 18 of John chapter 10. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. All right, going back to the very uh, first verse in John chapter 11. Or John chapter 10, verse 11, I should say. You see in here, there's, you know, when you think about the 23rd Psalm in, in its relationship to a shepherd, the comfort in the 23rd Psalm comes from the presence of the shepherd, doesn't it? Uh, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For thou art with me, right? Here in this section, it's talking more about the protection of the sheep. In this, in this one, Jesus is emphasizing protecting the sheep against the wolves. And the, the chief wolf, of course, would be Satan, who would devour the sheep. Okay? So in this little verse right here, in this little section, you see Jesus as the protector of the sheep. And you see here, he says, I, he says, I am the good shepherd. He doesn't say, well, I'm a shepherd for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. Now, we're not going to have time to read it, but Ezekiel 34 in the Old Testament is one of several spots where God predicts that he is going to come and shepherd his own people. Okay? Let me just read just a snippet of this for you. 
For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land and so on. Uh, later on, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. So that's just one of the Old Testament passages that points ahead to the fact that God is going to come himself and shepherd his people. Here we are, the fulfillment. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Okay? He is here, in other words. Now, and notice there, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Again, there's this idea or the image of he is in complete control of this. He, he wasn't caught off guard by circumstances. He, it wasn't something that was kind of getting away from him. This was his plan all along. He came not to be served, but to serve and give his life. Okay. Now notice again, it says here, uh, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep in verse 11. Look back to the first verse of the epistle lesson from 1 John 3, 16. By this we know, love, that he what? Laid down his life for us. There's the echo of it coming back again. Now, Jesus says he is the good shepherd. He's not the hired hand. Why? Because what does the hired hand do when there's a threat? Runs away. He doesn't care about the sheep. He's just there doing his job, right? Just more interested in the money, the pay. Now, I'm not going to stick around for this. Um, by the way, the... Uh, the Mishnah, which was the uh, sort of the common law book of, of the scribes and Pharisees back at that time, uh, actually said that if there were two wolves, uh, the hired hand did not have to stay at all. He could abandon the sheep, and there would be no prosecution possible whatsoever. So people knew this, and they knew what Jesus was saying, but not so with Jesus. Notice there, in Bible times, if a shepherd was, was actually killed by a wolf or was harmed by a wolf, that would be an accident. That would be a terrible accident. This shepherd comes intentionally to lay down his life for his sheep, to save his sheep from much greater danger that exists. Okay? Verse 14, notice it shifts back now. He's not talking in the third person, but back in the first person. I am the good shepherd. Now he'll describe what a good shepherd does. I know my own, and my own know me. So he knows us completely. Just like a shepherd knows his sheep, uh, and, and we don't have time to go into this, but he would check them over even physically every day as they came in and went out, so he knows us. And notice the comparison he makes here, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. So he says he knows us so completely, it, he compares it to the knowledge that he and the Father have for one another. You can't, you can't be known any better than that, right? Because they are one, I and the Father are one. Then I, um, then the, the verse I would, again, I, I lay down my life for the sheep. Then verse 16, here's what I was referencing before. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must, or it's necessary, to bring them in also. So again, here's a reference not only to other Jews who are not in the fold yet, but to many, many, many other people, including us, who at this point yet weren't in the fold. And he has brought us in as well. And notice that there, the result is there is one flock and there is one shepherd, namely Jesus. There, you, get, you kind of go back to that Acts 4.12, right? There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we are to be saved. There's only one shepherd. There's only one flock. And here it's a beautiful picture of togetherness and unity, right? And we, again, just rejoice there are obviously many, many, many different Christian denominations around the world, but the, the bottom line question is, is Jesus your shepherd or not? And if so, you are in the flock and you have one shepherd, and we rejoice in that. Okay? And then notice again the great control that Jesus has over verse 17, over his own life, death, and resurrection. 
For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life. So in other words, there is this complete oneness between the Father and the Son, between their will. And he says, I lay it down that I may take it up again. What does it mean to take it up again? The, the, the resurrection, to come back to life again, take up his life again. No one takes it from me, not Pilate, not any Roman soldier, not anybody. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. So again, uh, we, we read this as we are you know, moving on through the Easter season, and we're remembering now that crucifixion on Friday and that empty tomb on Sunday. And Jesus here tells us that was all by my authority and under my control. And I voluntarily, in other words, I voluntarily laid down my life for the sheep. Okay? All right. We're going to stop there for a minute. Any uh, either comments, questions on the gospel reading? So next Sunday is Good Shepherd Sunday, and that's the main reason. I don't know if we'll be doing Psalm 23 responsibly or not, but that's obviously the psalm that's always um, paired uh, with this for Good Shepherd Sunday. All right? All right, seeing no questions or comments, let's close with the benediction. Then may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. Thank you.